great. As you see, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, this uh, obviously is a uh, holiday weekend, as you can see, from people who are traveling. And, um, but it's a, a lot of our churches with this American flags prominently this morning because it's Memorial Day weekend. We can remember uh, those who have given their lives in defense of our nation, unlike Veterans Day, which is uh, remembering uh, those who serve. Uh, as citizens of the United States, we can certainly recognize that is a big part of our history. Our nation was birthed out of the Revolutionary War, breaking away from the monarchy of England in the 1700s, and fighting multiple wars since then uh, under the guise of maintaining our freedom and sovereignty. Um, as citizens of America, we recognize that, we can appreciate that. There's probably a lot of people in our, in our church who either know people or have family members, or close family members, or relatives who have served, maybe even some who did die in the act of serving to protect and defend these freedoms that we uphold as a nation. But as we've seen in First Peter, we're not just citizens of America. And that makes a huge difference because we're also citizens of another kingdom and our ultimate allegiance isn't to a geopolitical nation like the United States of America. We can also speak up and hold this nation accountable for the sins of its past and the errors of its past and the ways we don't do things right and haven't done things well. Peter tells us in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This kingdom is actually going to outlast the United States and all other nations. And our identification and allegiance to the kingdom of God is so great, he tells us in verse 11, it causes us to feel like strangers and exiles. So then, how do we live as citizens of both kingdoms? A super important question for every generation of believers to figure out. Not just for us who live in the quote-unquote freest nation on earth, but also brothers and sisters who live in nations that have more limitations on choice and opportunity. Well, we get some help in today's passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil, and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as cover for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brother, brothers and sisters. Fear God and honor the emperor. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to feast on your words, to gather as your people, to hear and heed the teachings of Scripture because they flow from the character and nature of God. And we desperately need you. So we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that we can um, hear and understand by the work of your spirit in us. So we don't just hear ideas from a person, but we hear God speak. And that's what we need. So come, Father, come and speak words of truth to our hearts. Encourage, convict, and transform and bring life, maybe, maybe for some here today, bring life where there is no life. We pray you do all of this for the glory of Jesus alone. Amen. Peter has reminded us of our identity in verse 9, but in the purpose of that identity we saw also in verse 9, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
He went on, we saw last week, to say in verse 12, we live in such a way to conduct ourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. And we saw last week that this is a missional desire. And this is not, uh, we live in such a way so that at the end of time when Jesus returns, the people who aren't followers, followers of Jesus will say, okay, I guess you got it right or wrong. This is a missional desire so that People now, here and now, will see the way that we live. They will sit up and say, well, that's different. Why, what is the reason for the hope that you have? And he tells us in verse 15 of chapter 3, be ready to answer that question. So that they will glorify God now, because God has visited us now through His Son, Jesus. Through the Spirit of God living in the people of God now. And so this is a missional desire. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the praise of Him cause out of darkness into light, with the hope that others will come out of darkness and into light. There's going to be several examples to the rest of 1 Peter what this light looks like, but we start here in these verses with six ways, six realities uh, that, we, that, that are true of us and how we live that show we're different, peculiar, not weird to say weird, but unique because we have a unique identity and a unique allegiance. And it shows up through this entire section of commands, the why, why we do this. So let's walk through these six realities in these verses. The first is we submit to every human authority because of the Lord, which is probably the most obvious thing we see in this passage, submitting to every human authority because of the Lord. From the context, we have the emperor as the highest authority in that Roman Empire. That was the truth. For us today, we probably see the Constitution. Because all three legislative, uh, our three branches of government exist to uphold and defend the Constitution. But in Peter's day, it was the Roman emperor or the local regional governor serving under the emperor's authority. Peter also reminds us of the government's primary role, protecting the good, punishing the evil, similar to what you see from Paul in Romans 13 in his section on submitting to governing authorities. Now notice this doesn't say we submit to these authorities because they're good guys because we voted them in, or because they're part of our political persuasion. In fact, the emperor in charge when Peter wrote this was Emperor Nero, who would in fact oversee the execution of both Peter and Paul in just a few short years. Yes, government exists, and Paul takes this further in Romans 13, saying that government is in fact a minister of God, rewarding the good and punishing the wicked. But our submission to government isn't contingent upon them being guys that are good all the time, or guys that we agree with politically. Our submission isn't contingent on government doing their job perfectly, always rewarding the good and always punishing the wicked. We know that doesn't happen perfectly anywhere. Government at best holds anarchy at bay. Well, not at best, at least holds anarchy at bay. At best they do better than that. They punish the wicked and reward the good. They at least hold the anarchy at bay. Because even the anarchists want there to eventually be order, or they would never be in charge. Right? So at least they hold anarchy at bay. All governments, no matter how free or how oppressed their people are. But none of them do it perfectly. There is no perfect justice in this world. There's certainly we experience that on an individual level. Many people get the raw deal today and experience injustice and unfairness. And the history of our nation. And the history of other nations is extended beyond the individuals to entire groups of people. Yet, these verses 
have still existed in all of these days and all of these nations for all of these believers. Submission is not contingent upon being the government we like or the government that does it perfectly. Submission, the word, is a choice that we make to follow the leadership of a person in that position of leadership. And we'll talk about later about submission that the Bible calls us to. It's not just blind obedience. You just follow them off a cliff. You follow them into evil. You, you follow them into abuse. It's not blind obedience. But it is, hey, this person's in charge in this context, and I'm following their leadership. Every human authority, Peter says, a boss, a president, a legislative branch, a Supreme Court, governor, mayor, police, teacher. In various contexts we find ourselves, we follow their leadership. And we do it, verse 13 says, because of the Lord. It doesn't say the emperor is the supreme authority, but the emperor is in that position, in that form of a government. So ultimately, our, our, our submission is to the Lord, which is why we can submit to human authorities, because we know who's really in charge. Romans 13 is explicit about who establishes ruling authorities. It was God himself. Ultimately, our submission is to the Lord. We submit to human authority because the Lord is the king of the universe. Yeah, but what about exceptions? I know, I know. Some of you might be dying for me to get to the exceptions, and we will. Well, let's first just ponder this reality that flies in the face of our individualistic, rugged American spirit. I have rights. I have freedoms that are ultimate. No one's going to tell me what to do. That's Americanism. Submit to human authority? Well, if it's in my best interest, I will. If it advances what I want to advance. Again, more individualism. What does it look like for us to follow the leadership of human authorities that we live under because of the Lord? Like in a unique, distinct way. Not just obedient sheep, but we're assessing, okay, I love God, and that's why I'm following your authority. Now, obviously, in a, a democratic republic like the U.S., we have options other nations don't have. If you don't like the policies of those in charge, you can theoretically run for office yourself. You want to do a better job? Do it. Theoretically, it's true. You can seek to change these things. You can publicly assemble. You can peacefully protest. You can petition to change laws. You can go visit every single person that's elected, whether you voted for them or not. There's lots of ways that we can change things, but we still do it in a way that shows the submission to human authority because of the Lord. Like, even as we walk out those processes, it's not the wild west where we just start breaking rules and doing illegal things to get our way, to impose our will on people. Whoever exerts their power wins. There is a way to walk this out that shows we are distinct. We are submitting to human authority because of the Lord. So everyone has to answer that question for themselves. Like, what does that look like in your home? As parents, what does it look like for you to submit to the authority of your Father in Heaven in a way that your kids know you're not just ruling your house like some tyrant. You're making up rules. Like our kids would tell you, who's the boss? And they'd probably say something like, uh, sometimes mom, sometimes dad. <laughs> Depends on what mood they're in. But hopefully they'll eventually say, Jesus is the boss. Yes, we tell them that all the time. Jesus has made us the boss of the, your, your parents. Like he's put us in this role to make rules so you follow, so you'll understand who he is. So you'll love him and obey him. Of course, when they're little, they grow up, it changes. But 
Um, what does it look like for you to submit to the authorities is if you're a student living under the authority of your parents in your home? Are you your school to your professors or teachers? Are your job to your boss? Are you supervisors? In a way that shows your distinctiveness as a follower of Jesus. Like I remember once in high school, I was a Western Ohio. They came up with a new policy one year. Boys can't wear earrings. So we were like, who are they to tell us what we can't wear? How dare they? So the plan was, we're going to all go to the mall, we're going to get those magnetic earrings, we're going to show up the next day and start a revolution. Right? It's so dumb. Did I want to wear an earring? No. Did I have any piercings? No. Did I ever want to? No. But they can't tell us what to do. We're going to, we're going to storm the principal's office. Just being obstinate and rebellious for the sake of being rebellious. But if it was a legitimate issue, yes, there's a way to voice disagreement. That so shows submission to human authority, even if you don't agree because of the Lord. Secondly, we do God's will by doing good. We see this in verse uh, 15. For it is the Lord's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. This flows out of last week's passage as well, conducting ourselves honorably so that when they see our good deeds, they glorify God. This is an overflowing of good deeds. If we're talking about enough good deeds to make non-believers sit up and take notice, to make them question, why do you do this? Why do you care so much? Why do you love and serve so much? Like, remember, we're being accused in this context and slandered that our motivations aren't good, but here, our good deeds are so overwhelming and so consistent that it silences those who slander our motivations, makes them look ignorant. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're ignorant about why they're really doing those things. It proves their accusations are false. It could be the number of good deeds, or it could be how long we do the good deeds. But we are that steady, shining light of goodness for a long time. Living out Jeremiah 29, 7. Pursue the well-being of the city. I deported you to pray the Lord's behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. This isn't bare minimum good deeds. This isn't just being good enough to stay out of trouble. There is a quantity and quality to these good deeds that show that we're not just being another good citizen, but we are in fact the people of Jesus. Some of it might be what we'll see next week, how we respond to persecution. So there's a steadfastness to our good deeds, even when we're not rewarded, but in fact punished for doing good. But for us, maybe it's digging into some of the dark and broken areas of our city. Maybe finding the places where Christians aren't serving and helping. Maybe loving those hardest to love. And I've had conversations with people in our church who have a heart for that, have a passion, have a desire. Like we want to be a church that just blows wind into that. Like, okay, let's, let's, let's see that happen. Take, take leadership, take initiative, take ownership of that. And how can we support you as the people of God? The mental health and homeless, homeless population in our city, the adult special needs population, or just special needs families who often don't show up in places like this because it's too hard. Those stuck in substance abuse and poverty, the neighborhoods trapped in crime and fear and chaos. Like, there's a couple of hundred churches in Washington Parish. Conservatively, there's probably 10,000 believers. At least 10,000 genuine followers of Jesus. That's plenty of people. Plenty of people to make an incredible impact for the kingdom of God push back the darkness and spread the light, to see gospel transformation, to see gospel saturation of every home and every neighborhood and every place where there is darkness. I mean, we're, we're sending 
couples and families to nations with thousands upon thousands to spread the gospel. We have at least 10,000 genuine believers in our area. What would it look like for the people of God and the gospel of God to saturate every single home and every single street in our area? Thirdly, we live as free people and good servants of God. Verse 16, submit as free people, not using your freedom as cover for evil, but as God's slaves, God's servants. Again, we clearly see the tension here. We submit to all human authorities as free people, but you say, that doesn't sound free. I'm having to follow the rules of the people in charge. Well, I thought freedom meant I could just do whatever I want. Well, logically, if you think about it, no human can just do whatever they want. No person. No person is that free. No person is as free as God. We're limited by the time in which we live. There's no, as far as we know, time travel. You can't go to other eras and do whatever you want. We're limited by our power and ability, the monetary power we have. We're limited by our intellect. We're limited by our relationships. We're limited by space. We can only be in so many places at one time. We're all more limited than we realize. So freedom isn't just freedom to do whatever we want. But as a believer, our freedom isn't to freedom to do whatever we want as a cover for evil. We're free as servants or slaves to God. This is actually true freedom. Like freedom isn't taking a fish out of water and saying, all right, fishy, now you can walk. You've never been able to walk before. But now you're free to walk on land. That's not true freedom. That's actually death. We're, we're free to do what is right and what is good. Free to live as God has designed and created us to live. Paul says it like this in Romans 6. What then? Should we sin because we are free, not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of that one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obey from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. We're set free from the bondage of sin to do and live out the righteousness of God. And that's where we thrive as human beings. Jesus helps us see how we use our freedom and submission to authorities in Matthew 17. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. When he went to the house, Jesus spoke to Tim first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Simon said, from strangers. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them, go to the sea, cast in the fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them, for me and you, to pay the tax. They were accused, Jesus and his followers, of not having to pay the temple tax. And Jesus asked this question, who do kings collect taxes from? Strangers or their sons? Well, of course, kings don't collect tax from their own family. They tax strangers in the kingdom. So, therefore, we, as sons of our king, our father in heaven, the ultimate king, we're truly free. But then Jesus says, but in order to not offend them, Go catch a fish with a coin in his mouth. And pay the temple tax. Like prove that our Father in Heaven is the ultimate king in the universe. He even controls fish. 
So that Matt, uh, Peter would throw in a hook and catch one fish with one coin and pay the tax. Like, okay, who's really in charge of this? I can promise you on that day, the disciples didn't wake up thinking that that was going to happen. They'd never heard of that, never seen that, and didn't think that was possible. And I do wonder when they had to come up with money later on, did they like bring that up again? Hey, there's a pond over here. Jesus, we can get some lunch, free lunch. When Jesus was confronted by Pilate, John 18, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. I have come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus didn't come to conquer the world with the sword of the truth. Truth that is freely proclaimed and truth that is freely believed. Never coerced, never forced. But this is what creates all the strangeness about how this kingdom spreads. Because it doesn't spread like other kingdoms. It's subversive. It's invisible. It spreads from person to person and heart to heart. In mysterious ways, Jesus says, the spirit moves like the wind. You don't know where it's coming or where it's going. So how do we get the gospel into, say, closed countries? You can't come in here and preach the gospel in a church. But you can come in and be a student. You can come in here and open a business. We can do that in legitimate ways, knowing all along that our ultimate purpose is to make Jesus known. That's freedom to do good as God's slaves, submitting to human authorities. Giving our lives for His ultimate purpose. Like we play the game. We play the game, we work in the economy of this world as agents for God to advance the ultimate kingdom. And that looks like we submit to human authority so that we can be in these places to have these opportunities to share the love of Christ. He's really created us for that ultimate purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of Him and call us out of darkness into light, to conduct ourselves honorably. That's true freedom. That's why we have jobs. That's why we live where we live. That's why He's given us the family He's given us. That's why He's called us to singleness. That's why we live in, in Monroe, also our parish. Like He's put us in all these places with all these relationships, every single person in this room, for this purpose, to be agents of His kingdom. As employees, employers, as citizens, as members of this community. And it's all to proclaim His kingdom. Fourthly and fifthly, these kind of go together. We honor everyone, but fear God. We live out this distinctiveness, this life that demands a gospel explanation. In verse 17, you kind of have this summation. Honor everyone, honor the emperor, but fear God. We are free because we don't live in fear of the emperor. We only live in fear of God. Now, this is not like being afraid of God, like I'm afraid of spiders or afraid of the dark. But this is living in fear of God, this holy, reverent, he's awesome, he's big, he's powerful, there's no one like him. Like the presence of God throughout the Bible, when he shows up and people know they're in the presence of God, no one is ever casual or flippant or dismissive. God is God, there's no one like him, and that means everyone. But as one of his kids, it means we are therefore not afraid of human authorities, because we know who the ultimate authority is. Like you even see this with the, the Apostle John. John they, they describes himself throughout his, apostle, his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. 
John is laying his head on the chest of Jesus as they're reclining at the table eating. Like this incredibly intimate relationship John had with Jesus. And in Revelation 1, when John is on exile on the Patmos and the glorified Jesus shows up, John said, I'd rather be dead. It's Jesus that he was so close to, so intimate, when he is in the glorified presence of God, he felt like a dead man. Had to be woken up like, John, don't die. It's Jesus. You're safe here. We know who the ultimate authority is, and we only fear Him. We're not afraid of the sword. We're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of persecution. This also doesn't mean that we are militant against human authorities. We submit to them. We honor them. We honor everyone. Every image bearer is deserving of that very basic honor and respect. It's not earned. It's given freely because they are a fellow image bearer. Yeah, but what about the scumbags of the earth, the pedophiles, those who prey on kids, the rapists, the mass shooters in schools or public places? Like, not them. They don't deserve to be honored. Well, I don't know. You tell me. Peter said, honor everyone. Were there scumbags in the first century? Yeah. And so we honor them. We don't even call them scumbags. Even those are part of us that feels that about people who treat kids like that. And, and honoring them looks like we still treat them as a human being. You have a fair trial. There's a right to defend yourself. There's justice that's executed. But for us, more than likely in everyday life, we're struggling to honor those who don't like us, or those who don't agree with us, or those who don't like what we posted, didn't heart it, didn't comment on it, or those who drive slow, or those who don't do their jobs well, they're incompetent. We struggle to honor those people who just make life frustrating for us. The passage would tell us they are a fellow image bearer and we should at least treat them with inherent honor and respect worthy of every single image bearer. Remember the purpose of 1 Peter. To win those who don't yet believe what we believe. So how can we win a hearing with people that we are either demonizing or we are dismissing because they don't like us, they don't believe what we believe? Now, the exceptions to submission, we see that implied throughout this passage. We, of course, see this in other passages. We never submit and follow the leadership of human authorities if following that leadership would cause us to disobey God's commands because we fear God. He's ultimate. He's the ultimate authority. So Pharaoh tells the handmaidens of the uh, Israelites in Exodus 1 to kill the Hebrew babies and they're like, we're more afraid of God than you. We're not killing these babies. And they protect life like Moses. Or in the early church in the book of Acts, when they tell them to quit proclaiming Jesus, they're like, we can't help it. Like, just flog us, arrest us, persecute us. We've got to tell people about Jesus. He's changed our life. So we never submit to follow leadership to human authorities if we call us to disobey God. He's the ultimate authority. And that must be taken into consideration in accordance to the Word of God and the community of God's people. Like, we need each other to help process these decisions. And if we have to choose, obey this human authority, and disobey God, we always choose to obey God, no matter the consequences. Now, sometimes false dichotomies are created, which is why you have to be careful, especially in today's world. We saw this in the COVID years. A Canadian pastor made headlines because he was being arrested for his church that continued to gather and just kind of thumb their nose at all the COVID rules that Canada had implemented. 
to put in place to slow the spread. It was being painted all over social media as this genuine persecution of this church and this pastor. And I have a friend who is a pastor in Canada, and I was like, man, what's up with this? Like, you guys being hunted down? What's going on up there? And he said every church that he knew about was still functioning as a church and doing fine. But this guy had decided to make this the hill in which he wanted to die. He was getting all this attention. The Church of Jesus doesn't need buildings, and the Church of Jesus doesn't need freedom to assemble laws in order to be a church. Those things are nice. It's nice if governments allow us to do that, but it's not necessary. The church has existed in places where we didn't have any of that, and it's done fine. In fact, it's thrived. You can continue to, and brothers and sisters at that time were gathering around the world in houses and small groups weekly, being the church. But sometimes it can get a little more confusing about what is right and good. Currently, this uh, chaplain job I have, uh, I told you, some of you know about it, uh, we're in eight countries and 50 states and 1,400 companies and 2,000 chaplains serving like 1.4 million employees. And all these businesses are letting us come in to care for their employees, even in countries like Canada where we can't call ourselves a chaplain because it's too religious. We're called like a care member or something. And we're just caring for people. Like, where are you at? How can I help? What do you need? What local resources can I connect you to? And so companies let us in to improve employee mental health and morale and, and improve their sense of well-being about themselves. But we're also in there to share the gospel, like explicitly to share the gospel. Pushing it, force that, you can't coerce that. But we're in all these different places with all these state governments and, and national governments, and now laws are being changed in regards to things like transgender pronouns. So we're going through these discussions as chaplains and chaplain teams Okay, what do we do about that? If the law requires to use the preferred pronouns of someone who identifies as transgender, and if our company is saying we should do this, then what do local chaplains do? Like, we want to be in there to spread the gospel. We don't want to get kicked out. We don't want to get fired for poor reasons. And companies are shaping policies to take this into account. Now, our belief about gender hasn't changed. God has made us male and female, and for a vast majority of people, genetically, biologically, it's very clear. But we have to recognize there are genetic realities, mental realities that for some make that harder, like that exists, that's a real thing. While also admitting for others, transgender exploration is a type of rebellion or sexual exploration apart from how God's created us. It's a type of brokenness that leads to more brokenness. But what if companies require us to use the preferred pronouns of the transgender employees, and if we don't, we're fired, fired or kicked out? What do we do? Is using a transgender pronoun causing me to disobey God? Is it helping me honor everyone, respect everyone, meeting where they're at, with the hopes to share the hope of Jesus with them while I'm loving them where they're at? If friends who have adult kids who have fully transitioned, and their experience has been, we tried to respect their choices early on, and now we believe it was a mistake. We shouldn't have respected those choices early on. We should have just called it what it was. There's an article that came out a couple months ago, Rosario Butterfield, if you know her story, she wrote that that's been her change of heart, no longer use transgender pronouns. But that's people that you're in a personal relationship with. These are people you don't really know, just employees you're getting to know. This isn't like a far away thing we don't have to worry about. This is going to become more common in every single marketplace. Every single institution, 
every single university in school. So I'm, I'm in a place where I'm like, well, names aren't all gender specific, right? Johnny Cash wrote his famous song, A Boy Called Sue. Some names don't can, can, can be the name of females or males. So while using pronouns might be a step too far, we can honor everyone by using their preferred name, because names are names. People are named after planets and cars and all kinds of things. I hope nobody, I'm not, that's okay, I'm not dismissing that. And hopefully we can honor everyone by using their preferred name, hopefully stay present, hopefully have open doors for the gospel while submitting the human authorities of the companies we serve in our own ministry. But there will be some chaplains who quit. If that's the policy that we have, that we have to follow. Because they, for them, being asked to do that is a step too far. Or maybe it's just a boogeyman they've created to rail against, like the pastor in Canada. That's where they've got to check their own heart. We'll need wisdom, we need the word of God, and we need each other to navigate this new reality that we're in moving forward. To love, to serve, to share the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God. And the reality of needing each other, that's the last thing, the sixth thing. There in verse 17, love the brothers and sisters. Honor everyone, but there's a special bond that exists between us, a bond of love. We care for one another. We're family. We sacrifice and serve one another. We live out the one another's of Scripture with each other. By our love, Jesus said, others will know that we are His disciples. And this came after He did the most disgusting thing of washing your feet. And just as much as living out these realities of honoring and submitting and living as free people serving God all show the gospel reality in us, so also should our love for one not doing the bare minimum, but going above and beyond for each other. This happens when we prioritize these relationships. Like we set them as important. We don't schedule the rest of our life. Everything else is more important. Now let me sprinkle a little, a little bit of time for my brothers and sisters. Now we recognize how much we need and want to be around each other. And we invest time and energy and commitment because I know I need you. And I want to believe you need me. And vice versa. I can't and I won't grow into all Jesus wants me to grow into apart from you. And you won't grow into all Jesus wants you to grow into apart from each other. But we. There's a sanctification that's only going to happen as I open up my life and let people in, brothers and sisters. There's a work that Jesus wants to accomplish that will only happen through that. And it's the same for you as well. There's an experience of joy and love that I won't experience apart from loving and being loved by my brothers and sisters. To ignore that to dismiss that, to lessen that, is to miss out on all Jesus has for us. It's to hinder my enjoyment of Jesus. It's to actually make my life harder because I'm forfeiting joy and love that Jesus wants me to experience from my brothers and sisters. Like, do we see that? We're forfeiting the experience of love by forfeiting making these relationships a 
or missing out on more love. Like, who has so much love in your life? You're like, ah, I don't need all that love. I got enough. My experience is we're all desperately hungry to be loved. Desperately hungry to be fully known, fully known in all the good, the bad, and the ugly, and fully loved. And Jesus is like, here, this is where it happens. It happens through me coming through my people. So live in such a way that you love the brothers and sisters. And it marks you as my people. Let me close and let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks truth to us in difficult days and hard places to understand how to navigate confusing realities. None of this is easy. It's all hard. And so we don't have, even as we leave, clear answers on every single thing. And so we need to continue to study the scriptures. We need to continue to have conversations with brothers and sisters about the body of Christ. We need to continue to pray and seek the wisdom from above. But thank you that there is hope because you have provided your word. You have revealed yourself, your character, and nature through your word. Have filled your people with your spirit. So there is a way forward. You've not left us. You won't forsake us. You want to continue to use us to spread your name and your fame and to spread your love. So help us do that well. If that means for somebody here, today is the day of salvation because they've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they need to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and and we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That today they would come alive in Christ by believing Him. But for, for most of us, that has happened and that is our experience. And so maybe we need to be encouraged, we need to be challenged, we need to be convicted. So we trust that you will do that as well. All for your glory, all by your spirit. Through your